Welcome to After All, the cross-generational podcast dedicated to discovering and rediscovering the social, political, and personal impact of The Mary Tyler Moore Show. I'm your host, Ariel Fisher. And I'm your co-host, Sylvia McCann. (laughs) Welcome to the show, guys. Welcome back. It's a new year. It's January 2nd when this goes to air, and uh, we hope you've had a lovely Christmas and Happy holidays and great New Year's and that nobody was as universally disappointed by the celebration of New Year's as we always are, let's be honest. But we're back and it's a new year, it's 2018. Let's uh, kick it off with a relatively innocuous episode about sibling rivalry and disappointing your parents. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are with episode 15, Howard's Girl. Mary's budding romance with Paul Arnell hits a roadblock. Paul's parents insist that Mary belongs with their favorite son, Howard. So this phrasing is a little misleading because we've not yet met Paul, but the way they start the episode, miraculously, it's spring and the trees are in full bloom outside after immediately having Christmas and snow. In Minnesota. In Minnesota. Don't you know? But we we are introduced to Paul, who is this funny, self-deprecating, super insecure, slightly graying, slightly older man. He's about eight years older than Mary. Um, And she's smitten with him, and he's definitely smitten with her. Because let's face it, who wouldn't be? I would be smitten with her. But But he's lovely. He's charming and funny, and I I think he's, he's the most sort of human uh, of the men that we have so far seen her with who are the, kind of caricature-like. Yeah, well, yeah, even the uh, the tax guy was kind yeah. of a little caricature Uber-nerd? He was uber-nerd. He, he was, was sweet and yeah. really nice, but he was definitely a caricature. That's a good way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, whereas this one seems the most human of her gentleman suitors so yes. far. And... It seems that we may see more of him. Mm-hmm. The actor in question who plays Paul Arnell is Richard Shawl, who was on a bunch of sitcoms, and that was kind of his role. And he would later go on to appear in as di- as a different character on Rhoda and as a different character on Phyllis. Uh, but in the Mary Tyler Moore Show, he is he appears in five episodes as Paul Arnell, later as apparently Howard Arnell. And are they twin brothers? I guess. Or I'm, I'm curious to see how we'll, they're going we'll to do this. Because I don't think we've met Howard yet. No. I think this is the first we're hearing of Howard. I mean, we're both, you know, pretty on the ball with things. Yes. And there is no Howard in any previous episode. Not that, no, not, not that, that I'm aware, aware of. of. No. But he would go on to play, again, Paul and howard he plays some character named dino for whom we have absolutely no context Mm -hmm. and he would also play uh chuckles the clown who at this point is a character that we've heard about but we've never seen 
and we may wind up seeing or wait no did we see chuckles the clown in the in the snow episode when they they get when snowed they in with the results in. for the election did chuckles come into the into the news I think room? that was chuckles oh yes. but it could have been anybody because it was it was probably because he was in clown suit. He was in clown suit, so it's hard to tell. Um, but I'm pretty sure that was Chuckles. I just remembered that now. I'm thinking like we haven't seen Chuckles yet. No, no, no. There was a clown who definitely came in and gave them the results of the election, so they could finally go home and go to sleep. Right. First thing in the morning on like a right. Sunday. Right. But yeah, so we're we're here and we're introduced to this new love interest for Mary, and he wants to bring her to meet his parents on their first. Date. First slash second date. Yes, because it's too stressful to be on a first date, so they're just going to consider the time he came into the office and asked her out their first date, and then this will be their second and to relieve the pressure. Is actually a really cute thing that they do because yeah. it's very that seems very contemporary to me mm-hmm. to actually talk about the awkwardness of the first date and to both agree that this is awkward and oh, yeah. to like let's just move on to our second date. And even when they start talking, because they go when he comes over. And they're, they're, you know, they're about to leave for the date and they're talking about the stress of the first date. And then Mary, well, he's saying something to the effect of, well, you know, I'm thinking maybe we just get it out of the way now that, you know, the stress of deciding whether or not I should make a move and kiss you and whether or not you would be offended by that. And, you know, is it too soon? Maybe we should just get that out of the way now. And she's saying, well, you know, I understand that stress. I would be, you know, worrying if you'd think less of me if I let you kiss me, but then if I didn't and I wanted to and yada, 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 and this goes on and then he goes, you know, screw it. And then they kiss and have their first kiss and he goes, hey, Mary, I still respect you. And they go on their date and I'm thinking, huh, That's very modern. It is. It is. It's not something that you would have seen prior to this in mm-hmm. any sitcom or possibly in any movie either until like the 80s or 90s exactly this 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 kind of uh voiceover uh critique of the relationship of sexual politics and the relationship as it happens yeah in in real time in real time it's very refreshing oh yeah it's, it's a cute thing to do well it makes me think of like sex in the city Totally. And the debate of whether or not to sleep with someone on a first yes. date. This is just a kiss, so it's pretty yeah. innocent. But, it's super innocent. But this is 19... Well, I guess it's, by then it's 1971. Yeah, in theory, yes. In theory. So it's 1971 at this point, and when, it, when the episode airs, it's 1971. Yeah. So, yeah, you have all of those sexual politics of the day, but then you're getting kind of that, that, that glimpse of the awakening of sexuality in the public consciousness and right? of can you know and, and i'm thinking even of what we were talking about earlier with when harry met sally and and mm-hmm. of course that their their ongoing conversation throughout the whole movie about can a man and a woman be be can, friends yes no and the sex gets in the way to clarify not a conversation we had earlier on the show a conversation we had earlier just between mom off and air. daughter off air just chit-chatting because i recently watched when harry met sally for the millionth time probably the the main film I've seen an, an uncountable amount. If it's over 60 or 70 times, I would not be surprised, honestly. But uh, yeah, and their whole conversation of, um, you know, we're just going to be friends. Good, great, fine, friends. That's fantastic. Yeah, who needs anything else? But, you know, of course we can't be friends. Well, why not? Well, men and women can't be friends because the sex always gets gets in the way. I could keep going and actually quoting she it, can, but I she won't. She can be all the characters. I can do it and I won't. It's like Bob with Ghostbusters. Okay. Just, uh, I'll stick, bite my tongue. Stick to the plan here. Stick to the plan. Stay Mary, on target. Mary Tyler Moore. Stay on target. 
But yeah, no, this notion of sexual politics and what's acceptable and what's not. But that doesn't even stay at the foreground of the episode. What's no. more on point here is that, uh, well, Paul is a somewhat successful speechwriter. Yes. For politicians. And, right. And for, pres- for one politician in particular yes. who I think he highly respects. Seems to. Yes. I don't remember the name. I didn't get it. But I think it's a makey-uppy politician. Yeah. But presumably it's a fairly liberal politician. You would, you would assume. You would assume. And he is of fairly liberal disposition. And, you know, at the beginning of the episode got into a fight over one of his speeches with a man with a tattoo of whom he is afraid. <laughs> and that in and of itself is really interesting just to see that shift in the public consciousness. Because in the 1970s... Only tough guys had tattoos. Only bikers and criminals had tattoos. Exactly. And as the 70s kind of progressed, women started getting tattoos as kind of a political statement Mm. of being able to feminize something like that and that it doesn't necessarily have to be indicative of of criminalization so the history of tattooing is actually really fascinating so the fact that they included that at all kind of made me perk up a little but he yeah so he's this successful speech writer who writes for some for some you know highly respected politician whom he highly respects as well and his parents are you know they keep his picture tucked away in a drawer Whereas, his, dear Howard, yes, his, his 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 maybe twin brother or maybe just someone who looks very much like him, yeah. who will be played by him, who will be played by him at some point. The parents have a shrine to him yep. because he's the Tons golden son. Just baby pictures and kid pictures, and Mary walks up and goes, "Oh, who are all of these children?" And his mother goes, "Oh, that's Howard," like dozens, just on one wall, and it's and they have they can't stop gushing about him now. Apparently. Mary and Howard went on all of three dates. That's right. And that was it. He had a light-up tie. We know mm. about this. He sells... He, he, I don't know. I don't think he manufactures, but he no, sells... he sells. He sells novelties. You know, yeah. no, cheap novelties. Under $9 novelty mm-hmm. items. Um, He's specializing in that market and breaking ground and yada, yada, yada. And all of that. So, and as you said... Specifically things that either light up or sing. Yeah. Like a cigarette box that opens and talks about the dangers of smoking. <laughs> That's bizarre. Which is just really, beyond. really strange. But mom and dad are super proud of him. And mom and dad, just FYI, are played, uh, Ms. Ar- Mrs. Arnell is played by Mary Jackson, who would be on the Waltons later as one of the, uh, what did, did they, they were bootleggers? They were bootleggers, the two sisters, the yeah. two maiden sisters who mm-hmm. made the recipe. If any of you uh, have watched the Waltons, there were the two old ladies and they had the recipe, which was quite coveted by the, uh, the, the, the village or the town that the Waltons lived in. And I think it was uh, probably 75% alcohol. Um, making the moonshine. Making the, the moonshine. And they were, you know, quaint little old ladies. Uh, and in this episode, she is a, a middle-aged woman. Um, mm-hmm. And the husband is played by whom? The husband, Mr. Arnell, is played by Henry Jones who had a bit part in Vertigo. He was also in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And he would later be in Arachnophobia as the older doctor who is verging on retirement that Jeff Daniels comes to town to replace, who then decides against retiring and winds up dying by way of spider. And if you've listened to A Frame Apart, and if you've listened to one of our episodes from our first year of Halloween coverage, you know that that movie caused me a great deal of stress. And gave me and my arachnophobia. Oh my god. 
But so so we've seen him before. I've never seen the Walton, so I'm not familiar with uh, with Mary Jackson. But both of these actors are apparently like very well known. Kind of that oh that guy or oh that or, oh that or woman. I, I know that face, but I don't remember from where. Exactly, yeah. character actors with over a hundred credits each. She had mm-hmm. like a hundred and one, and he had two hundred and five credits to his name. Like bit parts, you know, the odd sure. role here on a show, guesting or or miniseries or anything like that. But they are so enamored of their other son. <clears throat> Who we haven't seen, mm-hmm. but he did call Mary uh, at the beginning of the episode because... <laughs> because uh, he heard that Howard had... Uh, he that heard Paul. that Paul had... Well, Paul said hi to Howard on behalf of Mary, so Howard wanted to call Mary to say hi back. Right. You know, that you know, like, oh, say hi to so-and-so for me when you see them. Well, Paul said hi, and Howard took it very literally. And called at 9 o'clock in the morning before they were heading Going off to, to work. work. Yeah, to say, oh, Paul Paul said hi for you. Hi. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I can see why that didn't work out. Yeah, he sounded kind of awful. But it's interesting to see, like, this, I guess the reason why they are so proud of Howard. Well, they're pretty silly themselves. Like, they seem very, like, they're not silly people, the parents, but they seem very kind of... Uh, they're not very serious people. They're not intellectually. Um, there's no intellectual depth to them. They, uh, that's, yeah. They are on their way. Part of the reason why Paul takes Mary to their house because obviously this is their second slash first date. Not something that you would take a date to your parents' home. No. But they're leaving. <laughs> no. They're leaving for Europe the next day, <clears throat> and it's curious how she said. When Mary asks her, oh, so what? where are you going? What are you visiting? And she said, we're seeing London, Dublin, mm-hmm. Asia, and Paris. Yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and there's kind of a laugh track moment there. Where, and even the two of us kind of look at each other and just go, just, just Asia. Asia. Asia is like, you know, we're passing by Asia. That's, well, that's it's, kind of a little strange. It's so indicative of, A, the climate at the time. Yeah. That's still vaguely closed off. Vaguely conservative, vaguely racist. Yes, and you don't go traveling to Asia because it's foreign. Well, it's not just that you don't. It's not that you don't go traveling to Asia. It's that Asia's really friggin' big. <laughs> like to say Asia. To say that you're going to Asia without inc- specifying. Con- well, the concept of Asia as a continent encompasses such a vast diverse range of cultures just look from country to country asia encompasses both you know asia encompasses japan china india thailand cambodia laos like it's it's all all the same don't you know oh my god (laughs) (sighs) i guess i guess to the arnells it's all the same i mean I, uh... i i spent two months backpacking throughout southeast asia and even that's a very vague descriptor you know from thailand to vietnam is like night and day so you're getting this representation of oh yeah we're going to asia and it's it's in that one declarative statement you really do get a sense of what his parents are actually like it's and it more so now i think than you would have at the time at the time it would have just been like haha asia is bigger than that Right, but, but with, now with the amount of travel that people do these days, oh yeah, and and, and and with the diversity that we have here, exactly, to say we're going to Asia as an afterthought 
is so uh, it it kind of rankles. It it's, almost surprises yeah. me that they didn't just go for broke and say we're going to the Orient. Yes, like yes, that would have been true. that would have that would have been a, a culturally appropriate uh, for those days. That well, yeah, and it would have been so indicative of them as people. Now, granted, that kind of sets a, a precedent for being infinitely more racist, but. But in those days, saying was, that someone yeah. was Oriental Ugh. was acceptable. They're not a rug. I know, but that was acceptable. <laughs> it really was. Well, I know, and, and I and it's crazy. Well, but it I was. still heck with with Booby with my own grandmother. It's still a dialogue to try and tell her you can't call people Oriental anymore. That's no. not a you it's can't a say that. No. That's not a thing. It's not a thing. And it's still a discourse, right? So we really get this sense of what they're like. So it it kind of makes sense that they wouldn't necessarily understand or appreciate their political speechwriter son no. as much as they do their other son who manufactures and sells novelties, right? That they, it's something tangible that they can see. And, and I guess the money that he makes from that. Although we don't, they don't discuss that. Howard is rich or anything no, like that. No, but there is a brief throwaway where Mr. Arnell says, well, he just manuf- he just made this singing something or other that sold 500 units in the first whatever, like however many minutes or hours or something. So the implication is that he is very successful. Mm-hmm. Like it, we, we don't have, you know, quantitative numbers or anything like right. that. But we do, we, we're given the impression that he is... The successful son. Yes, he's the successful son. He's the financially successful son. Whether a millionaire or not, he seems to be more successful than his speechwriter brother. And as a writer, even at, like even for the time, I can tell you, he's not making a lot of money. No. Or we were told how much money he makes. Do you remember? No. At, yes, because at the very beginning of the episode, Mary discloses to Murray that she's interested in Paul Arnell. Oh, right. And then Murray then blabs to Mr. Grant. Who tells her. Mr. Grant looks him up in I don't know what because there was no internet at the time. And he says he graduated from here with a BA and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he makes $13,000 a year. And and $13,000 a year in 1970 or 71 was, was okay. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't millions, but it was perfectly acceptable. When I graduated from lab school in mm-hmm. 1977 and I started my very first job, I was making $13,000 a year and I thought I was a millionaire. Really? Yes. Well, let's see. You're going to calculate. We're going to calculate the value of... 13000 Yes, with inflation, $13,000 in 1970 is $83,252.41 a year as so per he, so 2017. He okay. So he was so all right. So he was okay. He was okay. He wasn't the poor brother, but no. possibly he was the, selling... he was the very comfortable brother. Right, but selling cheap, you know, chachkas maybe made him more money than that. Conceivably. Yeah. Conceivably. I guess, that's the, I guess that's the implication. Right. Wow, yeah. Oh, man. Money sucks, guys. Money sucks. <laughs> but I, so, you know, again, we have this favoritism that's being showcased. I know I have stories about not you playing favorites per se, but I have stories of feelings of angst and sibling rivalry with my brother. You have two sisters. Of you course. are the middle sibling. You are the, the middle child. I'm the forgotten middle child. Have you ever, with. Abuelita and abuelito, did you ever notice an element of favoritism? Honestly, I can say no. 
Okay. I, I can really say that I never felt that they played favorites. I think that they, I have no doubt they loved us all equally. I think there were certain things that one or the other of the parents were closer with one or the other of the children for very specific reasons. Mm -hmm. I think I was probably the more athletic of the mm. three of us. So when we came to Canada, I was the one who said to Abuelito, my father, I want a bicycle and I want you to teach me how to ride it. I want you to teach me how to swim. I want you to teach me how to skate. Mm. And I think for him, it was a very big deal because there are no brothers. And right. you know, in the traditional uh, male-female dichotomy that was at the time, I, I played the role of the son he never had right. uh, by virtue of wanting to be more athletic. <clears throat> so I think that was a thing. And, it, and I didn't do it because I wanted him to favor me. It was no. because I wanted to learn those things because mm -hmm. they were fun. And that was, well, by the time you came to Canada too, Dora had already gotten married, right? No. Um, she got married here in 1970. Oh, okay. So this was the year she got married. She got married in 1970, in June of 1970, and we arrived in 68. Okay. So uh, very shortly thereafter. Right. So, um, and Dora has always been the good daughter. She mm -hmm. has been the, you know, the firstborn child who is a good student. She's sweet. She's kind. She's helpful. Mm -hmm. She doesn't get in trouble. She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't have sex before marriage, except she did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but your parents didn't know? But my parents didn't know. Um, so she, she epitomizes the good girl. Yeah. The Mary Richards. Right. Whereas you were a little bit more of the Rhoda? I was a little bit more of the Rhoda in, in a very mild kind of way. And Claudia, by virtue of being seven years younger than me, mm -hmm. was the baby. So she could get away with murder and yeah. everyone would be like, oh, she's so cute. Yeah, even holding her breath. Even holding her breath when she cried. We made her cry on purpose. <laughs> to get her to hold your breath. To, to, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was. And you our, guys were mean. We were mean and our mother <laughs> was like, ah. She'd like freak out. Well, yeah, because Claudia would hold her breath until her face turned blue and I make Abuelita lose her mind. I know. Yeah. No, we were bad kids. But really, we weren't. We were all really good kids in the grand scheme of things. But even amongst your sisters, did you ever feel at any point... Because um, clearly, in the way they kind of put it forward in the episode... There is an element, and maybe this is just me putting that onto uh, You're Paul. projecting, are you? Maybe I'm projecting. It's possible. But it does feel like Paul resents Howard a little bit for the, for the attention he gets from his parents. Specifically in the way when Paul starts to try and explain to his father the importance of this speech that he's just written for this man who is now being considered to run for office who could then potentially work towards to the, White, the House. White House. Like, yeah. this is this is a big deal. Yeah. Like, you might not be able to tangibly understand what it is that he's doing, but what he's doing is clearly important. It's not only important to him, but it's, it's important, important in the broad the spectrum. Absolutely. And trying to explain that, and his father just not getting it. You know, there's resentment there, for sure. Did you ever feel that kind of resentment with your sisters for any reason? I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I honestly, I, I can't say that I felt any kind of, I, I was very, I, I was very happy with my professional life. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, I did try to explain to my parents what I did for a living. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't in relation to what my siblings did. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was just a standalone thing. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say no. The other thing, of course, is that my two sisters have a special bond Yes. As a result of health issues, um, my older sister has uh, donated a kidney to my younger sister, and there's there's no closer bond than, you know, I'm going to give you a kidney. Yeah. Um, which kind of, I know it sounds terrible to say because it sounds so petty. It's like, hey, why can't you take my kidney instead? Well. <laughs> which you can't because... You, you weren't know, for, a match. I'm not a match. So that's, you it's know. It's not for a lack of trying no, or no, desire no. to. No, of course any, not. In any no, way. No, But, uh, so, you know, the, the dynamics of that change and the dynamics of, uh, and I think birth order plays mm -hmm. a, a, a big role in that our older sister has taken on the, the matriarch role mm -hmm. now that my parents are gone in that she is, and I think it's a role that she fits very well in and, it, and is very comfortable in, in being the caregiver, yeah. the caregiver to everyone, mm -hmm. to her own children and grandchildren and to me and to our younger sister who is ill. So it's a, it's a very good role for her. And so we all fall into place into the roles that, that we are comfortable in. Yeah. Um, and to an extent, the roles that nature kind of kind of in put a way, yeah. yeah. Did you ever feel any sort of resentment? Well, you said you kind with of Derek? did with oh, Derek. Oh yeah, oh yeah, still do. Because we're we're dealing with it, and I deal with it, Derek. Because Derek I, is pretty oblivious to I, all of oh, this. Oh, Derek's so oblivious. I have to preface before I get into anything. I adore my brother. I I look up to him. I respect him. I am in some ways envious of him, jealous of him, but I have always, my entire life, wanted to emulate him in one way or another. Um, now, granted, when we were really little, he, he, he made my life a living hell because older brother, younger do. sister, he would torment me and tease me until I'd get upset and cry and lash out and, like, hit him. And then, and the then he'd go to you intervene. guys and be like, Ariel hit me and Ariel, don't hit your brother. But he was he was teasing me. Derek, don't tease your sister. Okay, it's fine. Leave it alone. But then he'd do it again and again and again and again. And he never wanted me around. I'd always want to hang out with him and his friends. And he'd, you know, no, you're my stupid little sister. Go away. And, like, I was embarrassing. So, but now, you know, there's only a four-year age gap between us. I'm younger by four years. So I, by the time now... Now you're both adults. We're both adults. Sort of. Ish, yeah. I ish. don't think we'll ever really be adults. But, no. but we're ish in that vicinity of adulthood. And so that, that gap has definitely closed. And, and I know we, we've talked to each other about some of the... Mostly me talking to him about the issues that I have. And a lot of that pertains specifically to my father's treatment of us and my grandmother's treatment of us. Um, and I, even growing up, like you, I'm sure you remember, or at least I hope you do, that there were times when I was like six years old or so where you would have to, I remember once specifically dad and Derek were playing video games, probably hockey or soccer or something to that effect, which they bonded over. And dad was, was Derek's coach for soccer for many years, but they were playing video games and I was getting so upset because I couldn't get dad's attention. Like at all. Mm -hmm. And you actually like held my hand, walked into the family room and said to him, you need to spend more time with your daughter. Mm -hmm. 
like had to put your foot down about it because like my brother, my father's pretty oblivious and doesn't necessarily always get everything. Doesn't read social cues. No. Even in his own home. No. And at least between Derek and I, I'm the more emotional of the two. And Derek no. is, oh my God, no, you don't say. <laughs> and Derek is the more Newsflash. logical of yeah. the two. Like he's, he's, I mean, he's also an academic. He's still working on a PhD and I didn't, you know, I, I finished my undergrad, but I have no plans of going any further with that, at least not at present. But so there were, there's been like growing up, I always wanted to, like I said, I always wanted to emulate him. So in high school, when he started doing drama and acting and directing and putting on plays I was like I could do that and so I started doing the same thing and I was very good at it and then he started writing and I kind of thought well I could do that and I wasn't as good at it but I kept so then I kind of wrote that off and I was like that's Derek's thing I can't Mm -hmm. write at all because because I don't write fiction like he does and then you know got into poetry and got into nonfiction and personal essays and eventually film criticism and discovered that I had a totally different voice and it didn't have to mirror his but that was after many years of trying to kind of come into my own and so now we're both writers in some capacity and yet because of the tangible nature of Derek's practice that he's getting a, a PhD which is still currently kind of in limbo but that's a thing that my grandmother and my father can both look at and go oh Yes, that is a high accolade. That Derek, the graduate student. Exactly. And Derek, the author. He's written a book that he's trying to get published. Those are tangible things that you can look at. But trying to explain journalism and media journalism specifically and the lack of financial compensation yeah. and the debt and the difficulty of lifestyle that comes with that is very hard for them to wrap their heads around. So they talk about Derek a lot more. They ask about Derek a lot more. I've been flat out told by my grandmother that my writing's going nowhere, so I should just give up. Whereas Derek has never heard that in his life. And I think to some extent there's a gender bias there as well. I would agree. Um, On both sides, like for both my father and my grandmother. But it's hard to kind of explain that. And I felt a lot of resentment towards Derek for that. And it's not even his fault. It's not his fault. It's not at all. And in talking to Derek about this, because I have spoken to him about it I've explained that I know it's not his fault I've asked him for help sometimes I've asked him to try and speak to either my grandmother or my father to be like hey listen she really kind of take a bit more of an interest and when I make it clear to him he definitely does work a little bit harder for me and he fights for me a bit more which is great and I and I tell him that I know it's not his fault and he gets it but that doesn't necessarily make the feelings go away and but at the same time it was very vindicating when he said to me at we just had Rosh Hashanah right well yeah back in September back in September Rosh Hashanah and we sat down and he's and he kind of I could see he was fighting with it and kind of said still with a big smile on his face you know I have to admit I'm very jealous that you're going to be published before me (laughs) I was like yes I love you and I'm sorry that that makes you feel that way but that's so nice for me to hear And, you know, he sent me a a lovely message the other day just saying, hey, I see all the work you and Bob do on A Frame Apart and with your promotion and and the show and and all the work you're doing. And I'm so proud of you. Good for him. And I'm jealous of your work ethic. 
And I'm kind of sitting here laughing going, work ethic, okay. You have no idea. But you do, because you, you put in a lot of work, and you have a full-time job. Yeah. So you're, you put a, a ton of work into your craft. It's, it's excellent. It's really good. Well, thanks. In fact, I, I was going to suggest to Derek that he should, I, what I suggested to him, me, mm-hmm. me at 62, saying, Derek, you should promote yourself on social media more. So was, is it you that's the reason why he's doing this now? Doing what? Promoting himself more on social media. He got a Twitter account. Oh. And he's been, and he started his own website. And has Well, been, I know the, the website. Yeah. No, the, this was just a conversation that happened like two days ago. Oh, yeah. So, he got a Twitter account. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> well done. No, the website was there before yeah. that conversation. But I said, yeah, you have to promote yourself on social media. And I was going to say, talk to Ariel. She's really good at this. <laughs> I, and I may, in fact, have said that in the conversation. So yeah. there you are. So it's, I mean... I think, honestly, sibling rivalry to some extent is kind of a natural thing. I think, especially when it's across gender barriers, and, like, I mean, if within gender barriers as well, I'm sure that happens, like three sisters versus a brother and a sister, still. I think when it's across gender barriers, you have more, there there are more things, more separate things that have less to do with, with, the sibling rivalry itself, but just by virtue of being a boy, the expectations will be different. Mm-hmm. And by virtue of being a girl, the expectations will be different. Oh, yeah. And and I think parents have to be hugely aware of this these mm-hmm. days. And I think age matters as well. When there's a big age gap, the there's more room for interpretation of why person A does this and mm-hmm. person B does something different mm-hmm. or whatever. Well, I was going to say, in, with respect to, to Paul in yeah. this episode, my feeling about him is that, yes, he's resentful, but he doesn't feel sorry for himself. No. He, he's quite proud of the work he does. Yes. And if anything, he, he kind of... Um, I don't want to say he denigrates the work that his brother does, but he kind of does. He kind of feels that his work is more important than his brother's chachkas. Yeah, he does. And uh, and I think he doesn't think much of his parents for, it's not, why don't you love me more and why don't you accept what I do more? It's more, you guys must be idiots for thinking that Howard is a better son. It's, 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 it's still fairly... Yeah, I can see that. It's not nuanced. It's very kind it's of... It's very... Yes. It's, well, it's, they have 24 minutes... 20, 21, 22 minutes every episode, or 26. Yeah. 26 create, minutes because to, it was there were fewer commercials. Yeah. But they're... You know, it's it's very... They have limited time to make a big statement, and they make it. They and definitely make the statement do. by, you know, by hitting you over the head with a hammer. Yeah. Because that's the way shows were in those days. Mm-hmm. Especially sitcoms. Yes. And I, I really feel for Paul in this episode. I, I do too. I, I relate to him. Because similarly... I don't feel bad about the work that I do. No, and nor should I, you. I'm proud of the work that I do. I, I do wish that I could push myself harder and do more, but there's so many hours in a day. Exactly. But I'm, I'm proud of the work that I do. I love the work that I do. I love doing this show with you. Likewise. I love doing A Frame Apart. Yes. I, I'm so glad I got to participate in the Yuletide Terror book that came mm-hmm. out last month. And I'm... And, of the work that I have planned. I have a couple of nonfiction things that I want to write, like a couple of books, a memoir kind of idea, and some stuff like that. So I, I, I'm proud of the work that I do. The frustration and the resentment comes from trying to convince other people to be as proud of me as I am of myself. And I think that ultimately comes down to an issue of 
really realizing that you don't need anyone. You, if you're proud of what you do, that's good that's enough. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. And I've never had to convince you to be proud of me for of what I not. do. You tell me on the regular, and it's great for my ego. Yeah. And you understand, mm-hmm. as you know, you understand the work that goes into the work that huge. I do. You understand it's the effort huge. and the energy and the time and the emotional and intellectual strain. So I've never had to try and be like, hey, hey, what I do matters too. Feed me, feed me. I may not be getting a PhD, but what I'm doing is a lot of work and I'm proud of that work and I want you to be too. You are proud of it. It goes over dad's head. And Booby is of a generation that just cannot comprehend. Why you would want to do this and not get paid for it. Well, it's not even not want to get paid for it, but not, you know, why would you want to do something that is difficult to get paid for? Right. Yeah. It just doesn't, mm. whereas you think PhD, ah, you're going to go on, you're going to get a job, you're going to be successful, you're going to be gonna a contender. You're going to be a professor. You're going to be a professor, you're going to be a doctor. It's great. Yes. It's, she's a perfect Jewish booby. She's, a, yes, she's she proud is. of her soon-to-be doctor grandson, who's going to be the first one in our immediate family to have a PhD. That's something in the world of Judaism. That is a thing of pride. It's all about the letters <laughs> behind your name. It totally is. And I have no letters behind my name. Yes, you do. Mm-hmm. You have letters behind your name. B-A. So? Yeah. They're letters. They're letters. That's true. I shouldn't be denigrating Don't myself Don't denigrate so what you have. Yeah. It gave you some critical thinking skills. It gave me a lot. I owe that all to Dr. Roulette. Man, that guy was a great professor. And Allison McQueen, Dr. McQueen. She was fantastic. I sat in on one of her lectures. You did? Wasn't, wasn't she the art? History? She was my art history prof who specialized oh. in uh, Napoleon III's wife. Oh. She was, uh, yeah. She, she, I took a thesis course with her on uh, Manet. And I think she did do, I think I know what you're talking about, though. I do think you might have come to a lecture of her. She was blonde, yep. short hair. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, everybody was afraid of Dr. McQueen, but everybody wanted to impress Dr. McQueen. Because yes. if you could, A, if you could make her smile, and B, if you could get her to say this was good work, you were like, uh, it's, you made it. That's mm-hmm. it. You've reached the, eche- the upper echelon of pleasing professors because she was a hard person to please. But yeah, no, that was, yeah. I don't even know why I got out of that. Oh, no, no. critical thinking skills. Critical yeah. thinking skills. But, Which alas. is what universities should be teaching. But that's another But that's discussion. another discussion. So thanks for joining us, guys, for this episode all about the joys and trials and tribulations of sibling rivalry. So that was Howard's Girl. Episode. Episode. (laughs) Episode 15. Next week, we'll be coming to episode 16. Party is such sweet sorrow. Hmm. Mary is offered a job to produce her own show at another television station. Ooh. All righty. This is going to be interesting. We know she doesn't take it. We know we know she doesn't take it, but <laughs> but that's great. Maybe she takes it for a little bit. No, she definitely doesn't take it. She doesn't, doesn't take no, it. No, she doesn't take it. Well, this will be lovely to see in this episode. Will be directed by Jay Sandrich and written by James L. Brooks. Or no, he was just the creator. I can read. This episode will be written by Martin Cohen. We'll see if I can remember to do that every episode. I haven't done it in a while, so apologies for that. But tune in next week. And in the meantime. Check us out on all social media. You can find us at After All Podcast on iTunes 
Instagram and Facebook if you have any feedback about the show or would like us to talk about specific issues for a given episode, send us an email. You can reach out to us at afterallpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's afterallpodcast at gmail.com. Or again, send us a message on social media and you can find our episodes on all podcasting networks, pretty much everywhere, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, etc. But most importantly, you can find us on iTunes. So please share us with everyone you know. You can go to a dinner party, tell them about after all. Get them to uh, rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Every, atten- every little bit of attention we can get on iTunes helps the show become more visible, helps more people find it, and helps us reach a larger audience. So tune in next week, and we'll see you then. 